0: You know, it's so disorienting the whole, you know, when you are kind of a child experiencing someone else's addiction, you don't really understand what what it is you're experiencing. And then as an adult, what I find really interesting experiencing his show now is how how I still am disoriented You're listening
1: to Episode 7 of The Nature of Nurture, a podcast for your mental health. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Carr, and these episodes are meant to be consumed in order, or at least that's what you're accustomed to hearing me say at the top here. Really, like many of the episodes in the back half of this season, the only prior episode that really matters for our purposes today is Episode 1. In that conversation, I sat down with some very smart colleagues of mine, and we laid down a bit of primer on issues related to mental health broadly. And we talked about what's really happening when we suffer. Today, we're going to talk about how those themes apply to drug abuse and addiction more specifically. Now, today's episode is technically a bonus episode, you may have noticed. And I'm labeling it a bonus episode because, in a strange turn of events, I'm actually the one being interviewed. A few months ago, I was interviewed by two people at the same time, Stephanie Mitchell and Kyler Ballinger, as part of an art exhibit that was happening at the Lawndale Art Center in Houston, Texas. So today's episode is unusual in a number of ways, and one of them is that it's my first podcast episode to come with visual aids. Kyler, who you'll hear from today, is the artist. And Stephanie was, at the time of this taping, the director of Lawndale. She since left because she moved back to the Northeast with her family. More about Stephanie in a moment. Kyler is a video artist and a filmmaker. And the project that was showing at Lawndale was something called Inheritance. Kyler's father was an opioid addict. Vicodin was his drug of choice, and Kyler has dabbled himself in what I would call opioid abuse, not quite full-scale addiction. So he created a video series and installation that explored his experiences of both growing up with a parent who was an addict, as well as some of the feelings and fears around what it's been like for him to be able to locate some of those same impulses and desires within himself. If you would like to go check out a sampling of the videos, you can go to kylerballinger.com it's in the show notes, and you can click on inheritance. You can pause this if you want and go look at the trailer, although heads up that there are some graphic suggestive images of drug use in that video. I wouldn't watch it with a young child in the room. While we're at it, I also curse once in this interview. So if you have children around or sensitive ears, I just want to tip you off about that. The way the video is played in the installation is that it's three videos playing at once, where the viewer wears headphones and only hears the audio from one video at a time, and it switches. So where the audio comes from alternates. The experience is meant to be disorienting and it's meant to mimic, as you'll hear us explore shortly. The experience of being a child with a parent who's inebriated, where there's a disconnected sense of not knowing what to pay attention to, or where your attention should go because it shifts. This is something I refer to in the episode as a form of what therapists call parallel process. The viewer shares Kyler's experience as if by proxy. I was asked to participate in this because a colleague of mine was trying to help find a clinician with expertise in addiction who was willing to be interviewed by Kyler about his project. And I'm an addiction expert. I did my predoctoral residency at a Kaiser hospital and their chemical dependency unit. So treating issues related to abuse and addiction is one of my primary areas of expertise. And I was thrilled to get to be included in this. When Kyler and I first connected and were exploring whether I should participate in the conversation, whether I was the right fit, I asked him bluntly. I said, look, I would love to do this with you. But are you open to interpretations that aren't as simple and reductionistic as you having a predisposition to addiction or abuse because it quote unquote runs in your family? And he was super open to having a more out of the box conversation about his experiences. So that's the discussion that you'll hear today. Do genes play a role in addiction? Sure, but not as big of a role as you might think, so you'll hear us unpack that. We're joined on the call by Stephanie Mitchell, the now former director of the Lawndale Art Center. Stephanie is a trained art historian and an expert in modern and contemporary art, and she's also the child of an addict herself, so she shares her experiences here candidly as well. Now, on to the content. To set up today's discussion, there's one thing I want to tell you about. It has to do with a book by a journalist named Ethan Waters called Crazy Like Us. In the show notes, I'll link to both the book itself as well as an excerpted version of that that was printed in the New York Times. I highly recommend the book. It's truly a page turner, but I totally get it if you don't have the bandwidth to read the whole thing. If that's the case, I really recommend the New York Times article version. It's really enlightening stuff. The book is about mental illness around the world, and it does an excellent job of combating this idea that we live with in the United States, that certain mental and emotional experiences like anxiety or depression are a result of biological imbalances. Things that we think of as being endogenous conditions, which is just a fancy way of saying internally generated, are in fact culturally bound syndromes. Depression, anxiety, eating disorders... These are largely American or at least Western problems. We don't see the same thing the world over. Or at least we didn't until the United States started exporting its understanding of mental suffering around the globe in the same way that we've exported McDonald's, Starbucks, or Coca-Cola. Now I'm bringing this up in this episode because drug addiction is no different. Lots of things load into a person's tendency to abuse substances. At its core... Drug abuse is a result of a desire to ward off unwanted thoughts and feelings. It becomes, in its problematic states, an overworked, overused coping strategy. But drug abuse and addiction have cultural elements to them as well, because the drugs that we become addicted to change in accordance with the times that we're living in. You've probably heard the phrase opioid epidemic. And it's true that we have a problem here in the United States with opioids that has reached epidemic proportions. This is our national shame. Beginning in the 1990s, we've experienced waves of deaths brought on by opioid overdoses. And in the 20 years between 1999 and 2019, almost half a million people have died from opioid overdoses in the United States it's worth noting that three times as many people died of an opioid overdose in San Francisco than of COVID in 2020. This is an American phenomenon, and it's a modern phenomenon. It is a product of our day and our times. So I hope you'll keep that in mind as you listen to today's conversation, that someone like Kyler has not just inherited his father's genes, he's inherited his father's coping strategies, and he's also inherited to a certain degree, his country's legacy of pain and its consequences.
0: We're talking about addiction being multifaceted. One of the benefits of the pandemic has been that we've built out these different components to our exhibitions so that there are kind of multiple entry points for the shows. Yeah. And they'll essentially exist virtually
1: forever. Very cool. It's a really awesome body of work. My understanding is that when it's li- when it's live in the exhibition space, the videos are playing simultaneously, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I had to try to kind of keep that in mind when I was watching them one by one. But I, I would imagine that's super cool. I love video installations like that. I've, you know, just seen some things that obviously are very different, but kind of s- just similar in terms of like videos playing at the same time, you know, simultaneously. And it's just yeah. always so compelling. Well, and Leslie, once
0: we we touch on some of the kind of we wanted to start with. I want to come back to the way that it's installed because it did come. The idea for the installation really did come from I think our mutual experiences: these children of addicts. Which is a very there are lots of reasons to install videos simultaneously or not. I'm not sure if this has ever been. <laughs>
1: Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine how it's got a real, so in the language of my profession, there's a term we sometimes use called parallel process. And this feels similar to that, where it's, I can imagine that it's almost as if by having things play simultaneously, it kind of mimics the insanity of having multiple experiences at the same time. You know, you've got a you know parent who is you know, loving or you're close to, but they're behaving erratically. And it's, you know, like to sort of have that Simultaneous experience, I would imagine, gets mimicked in the experience of watching the videos. That way, is that kind of part of what you're talking about, Stephanie, or part of what you are going
0: for, um, Kyler? Would you like to speak to this first?
2: I almost want to answer by returning with a question, which is this: like, mm-hmm. uh, this is for Stephanie too. Is it common with like opioid use specifically, or or at least some drugs that are um, maybe calming in some way, where there's this combination of loving parents who are like totally neglectful and, and like using drugs, but the, the the affect is like not, um, outwardly abusive.
1: Well, it's so interesting. I'm uh, sort of, my brain is going in two different directions simultaneously, because on the one hand, I don't think that I could speak to what I think is common in that arena, because I don't know enough specifically about opioid use in parenthood, right? Like that's not necessarily a phenomenon per se that I have studied specifically, but it just feels really intuitive to me that that would be the case that, you know, it's, it's just interesting that there's kind of broadly speaking, there's abuse and then there's neglect, right? Right. You know, neglect is, can be just as significant as abuse can be, but it's, it's almost a, it's a negative stimulus, so to speak, right. It's the absence of something as opposed to the presence of something. And I think just the very, the very nature of opioid abuse would sort of make that necessarily. So
2: in terms of like the parallel process, that's my first time hearing that, but in terms Mm -hmm. of like what, I guess what I'll assume that that is something that I really noticed when, when making the films and also just dealing, dealing with, with my father just in general is that, uh, He's most passionate and most sort of animated and most like detailed when he's talking about his his drug use right. or his his past. That seems to be where like so much of his energy is like focused. You know, uh, and especially when he's kind of narrativizing his history. When you're in the room, when you're in the space, and he's talking about this kind of list of all the pharmacies that he kind of mm-hmm. that he kind of went to, or or when he's talking about how. He was able to, you know, fudge prescription uh, notes. But you're you're seeing you're seeing these other images from from the other films. I think it shows that like this time is kind of com- compressed. Like you have these. Uh, you you see that I'm grown up. If you understand yeah. that I'm his son, you see that that I'm like alive and I'm I am his son. And he has grown up. He has made it. You know, he's not dead. So the experience of him, like, I think the experience of him, like, detailing and sort of energetically talking about this, these, like, moments that are so important to him about his use kind of spread over the course of these different screens and different times is that kind of parallel process that I was thinking about when we were talking about installing the shows uh, with all the films playing simultaneously.
1: Ah, uh, got it. Yeah, it's so interesting. Something I can't help but want to say, even though it, it might move us in a slightly different direction, but what you're describing is so common around any addict when they're talking about their drug of huh. choice, so to speak, because for so many people, it becomes their primary relationship. You know, the deeper we move into addiction, the more so that becomes true. And it's almost like a, you know, it's a love affair, right? It's like somebody talking about, you know, the love of their life in a lot of ways So that that feeling of like animation around it is not uncommon. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think actually, Leslie, that ties into when, when we were in the galleries thinking through the different challenges of the installation, as Kyler mentioned, we initially had a different vision for how the films would be presented. And pre-COVID, we actually were going to screen the films sequentially in, in what is, would be a little like black box here at Lawndale. And we moved Kyler out of that space onto our second floor gallery where there are three large walls, which you saw, I think, in the installation. It was, but it did present a challenge as to how the sound was going to come through because at that point when we were installing, we weren't able to commit to using headphones. Mm. People could, you know, individually experience the films and kind of move through the gallery. And I remember Kyler talking, I mean, we talked at that point about how universal or common the experience can be between either addicts or the children of addicts and how, you know, we were dealing with this challenge of how to present the sound and Kyler, correct me if I'm missing or misconstruing anything, how to present the sound and then talking about how, you know, at least in in the experience of being a child of an addict, you know, it's so disorienting. The whole, you know, when you are kind of a child experiencing someone else's addiction, you don't really understand what, what it is you're experiencing. And then as an adult, what I find really interesting experiencing his show now is how, how I still am disoriented. How I'm disoriented because sometimes I don't know what was real in my experience and how my memories have distorted over time to create a kind of different memory or experience. And when you go in to the gallery, you hear, because people come into the space by appointment, but they, they don't enter into Kyler's exhibition from the beginning. They, enter, they don't know when they're entering in. So you do, the films are all playing on a loop, but you don't know at what point you're entering the audio. But the audio really can apply in such an interesting way to all of the films, especially from my experience, again, it's like this child of an addict, like those voicemails, some of those voicemails may as well be voicemails my father left me. And I feel them differently depending on which film I'm looking at. And so we were wanting the, the viewer, I mean, that's a very hard thing to communicate to a viewer. And you also can't prescribe someone's experience with art or performance. But we sort of agree that that would be a very honest way of presenting, and an honest and unusual way of presenting the material.
1: Yeah, something about that just feels so analogous to the experience that we're talking about of kind of not knowing what's true, what's not, what's real, what's not kind of not. Um, the way that I'm tempted to put it is to sort of say that there's a feeling of not knowing what to hold on to. You know, it's just like, where where is your attention supposed to be? At what layer of your experience is your attention supposed to be when this is going or being parented? Yeah. It's interesting because if the audio were all playing at the same time, which is what I thought was happening, I could sort of imagine that just being, it's interesting to think that you could create an analogy for just, it's like, what do we think of when we think about the notion of psychological noise, right? And I know that that's not, you know, that's not the way sort of the end result of this experience is, but I think it's all in a similar boat, right? Of just how do you, how do you make sense of what is sort of a noisy or confusing experience?
2: Well, something that I was really hoping that you would talk about from our from our first conversation is about, like, genetic in, inheritance or lack thereof. And I think that, like, when Stephanie and I are, are talking about, I don't know, this experience of being a child of an addict, I think people understand that language, like, very clearly. Like, there is, like, oh, yeah, I, I get that as, like, a trope. And I think it is true in some ways. But when we were talking, you had a re- much more, like, complicated and interesting approach to like seeing how those things are passed on.
1: Genetics is such a complicated thing. I think we, um, we get some confusing ideas in the, in the world that we live in around what it means for something to be genetically inherited in the sense that addiction has some genetic components to it. There were, you know, last time I checked up to 50 different genes that are implicated in addiction, kind of broadly speaking. But genetics in and of themselves is sort of complicated because there's this thing that we refer to as epigenetics, which is the idea that genes can be turned on and off by all sorts of different things that we experience in our environment. It can be the food we eat, you know, toxin exposure, you know, and the quality of our relationships and trauma and that kind of stuff. So I think one of the things that is really interesting about how addiction can run in families is that when you see it getting passed down from generation to generation it's really easy to simplistically assume that somebody is passing down their genetic proclivity towards addiction you know from one from one generation to the next but unless you're looking at cases of adoption which can complicate things on multiple levels we are not just products of our parents genetically. We're products of the way that, you know, we are parented. We are products of what we call intergenerational transmission of trauma, where there's, you know, there's neglect gets passed down from generation to generation in the same way that social learning gets passed down from generation to generation. And I think something that I just would point out as we're talking about this, my ears kind of clued in immediately to what you were saying, Kyler, about growing up in Novato and there, there being this sense of this kind of bored community leaning a lot on drug addiction, because how does that occur, right? It doesn't occur in a vacuum. I mean, quite literally speaking, where do we get the drugs from? We get the drugs from other people. Where do we even get the idea that one should experiment with a drug in the first place? We get it from other people. You know, none of this stuff is occurring in a vacuum and we cannot afford to, you know, imagine or pretend that it does. Right. So it's, it's interesting that I think one of the things that's so complicated about being a human being is we're subject to multiple forces simultaneously. And, because there are these you know 50 some odd different genes that can get turned on and off if you look at something like addiction specifically there are lots of things that turn those genes on and off one of them is exposure to a drug quite literally which is to say that you know one path to addiction is exposure to that particular drug which sounds really reductionistic and simple but that is occurring in the context of you know, people that are fill in the blank, you know, bored, looking for ways to entertain themselves, getting together and simultaneously curing their boredom with drug abuse that later turns into addiction sometimes, you know, and it's all, it's all part of this like soup, you know, like fish swimming in water. It's all multifaceted and non-reductionistic ultimately, I think.
2: Are we, by we, you, uh, like, as a field, learning more about how to sort of even talk about the
1: yes, I think so. And I also think that it waxes and wanes, and different people ultimately believe different things. I think that there are what it's a the whole field of professional psychology, psychiatry, it's broad and it's multifaceted and it has different factions. And I, you know, it, I probably should acknowledge that I'm sure there are some clinicians out there that you know, look at something like even alcohol addiction as like, you just have a gene or you don't have a gene. And some of it is, you know, it's sort of subject to personal opinion. Yeah. I personally think that that's, there's a tremendous denial of the reality of what it means to be a human being when somebody's looking at things that way. But, but absolutely. I think science is constantly evolving. The science of genetics and epigenetics is constantly evolving. And I think also we sometimes just get corrected. I, facilitated a panel discussion recently where we were talking about mental health and COVID. And one of the things that we talked about is these articles that have come out that are fascinating saying that rates of mental illness are higher right now during COVID. And it's like, well, are rates of mental illness higher or are people struggling because they're living through a fucking pandemic? Sometimes even within my own profession and within my own field, I think people can be a little bit obtuse in the way that they think and talk about human behavior. Like we are all human beings that are responding to the environments in which we live. And we can't afford to take that out of the way that we respond as humans in multiple ways.
0: One the, of the things I loved reading through your initial correspondence with Kyler, Leslie, was the way that you really hammer or honed in on how multifaceted and complex an issue this is. I mean, because we are complex, everyone is, is complex as an individual. And one of the things that I remember really struggling about when, when I was going through a period with my father and I was living in New York where there was a particular set of artists that were, profiled in the press and had real cachet in the New York art world and their work centered on drugs and addiction. And, you know, for lack of a better word, but it has been ascribed to this lawlessness and, you know, they weren't outcasts by any stretch, but but the word outcast is often used when, you know, the work of artists that depict addiction or drugs or, or whatnot is brought into institutions because I think it is a way to make the work somehow more tangible or sanitized for the public. But when I was going through again this period with my father's addiction and then being very closely in in proximity to this group of artists, somewhat socially but also through the art world, I remember going to rehab. I went to rehab. My father went to rehab twice. And he went to a rehab that was not like a Betty Ford Clinic, it was the rehabs in Del Mar, California I don't think that they had been accredited and I had to sit in these sessions with him where I really felt like he was excused from any kind of personal responsibility or simply in just like identifying his own complexity, that it was, you know, the the gene of alcoholism or the Mm -hmm addiction of the opioids, which we understood this was 2009 when he first went to rehab. So at that point, we understood what OxyContin was. And so one thing I've kind of battled with over time is, you know, where the addiction begins and where the human responsibility or even just like the personal characteristics of him being kind of a monster. And, you know, I don't know. And and I think about this a lot. And I, I don't want to take too much from the discussion or from Kyler's work. But As Kyler knows, this is something I really grapple with when I look at the practices of artists. There is this almost dichotomy that's set up when their work is presented in institutions like, you know, they were just a victim of the drug or or whatnot and the complexity is taken out.
1: I have so much to say about this, if I can just jump right in, because it's funny to think that, you know, ultimately in my mind, you just said more than one thing, but this is what I'm kind of zeroing in on the most. One of the things that I think that we struggle a lot with in the world of mental health, period, broadly speaking, is this idea that I think a lot of people have pushed a narrative that whatever anyone is struggling with in their mental health, that it's genetic or it's biological, in part because they imagine that it would remove stigma. So, for example, you know, it's kind of like, well, you know, and there's this idea of parity, right, which is mostly has to do with just insurance companies. It's the idea of, you know, mental health is kind of on par with your physical health and certain things should be reimbursed by insurance companies in the same way diabetes or a surgery would be reimbursed. And it's actually, there's a lot of good intention in that. The problem is just that the two things are not, they they are equally important, but they're not exactly the same. You know, to to be a drug addict is not, it's meaningfully different than having diabetes or like, let's say like, um, God, I confuse them, but I think like type one diabetes, you look at like the type of diabetes that someone is just born with. It's like, there's a meaningful difference between those two things. And there are a couple of problems here that are worth unpacking. One is that studies actually show that it doesn't reduce stigma. It actually is just otherizing. If you assume that somebody has a problem with anything related to their mental health and it's genetic or biological, it just makes them seem like an anomaly to you and something that is kind of like ultimately incomprehensible or just not understandable. And also it takes out not just personal responsibility, but any meaningful ability to actually do something about it at a deeper level. So if you look at something like addiction, if it's truly a genetic or biological condition, the only cure for drug addiction ironically is a pill basically, right? Because like what else what else would you what else would you do with a condition that's purely biological? When in reality, if you work in addiction treatment, it's pretty it's kind of unavoidable that what is actually happening at the most basic level is that people are looking to escape reality they're looking to escape uncomfortable feelings they're looking to escape you know trauma that they have survived or you know at least have been a victim of and if you can't treat that part of it it's like per- the notion of personal responsibility is one piece of it and i think it's a really important piece of it but there's also just how do you actually solve the problem you know if somebody is using a drug to avoid an uncomfortable feeling that they're having in response to something that's happening in their lives. If you don't address the life event and you don't address the feeling that they're looking to escape, you're toast. You can't do anything meaningful to help a person. So I'll just sort of pause for a moment to see how this is landing. But it's there's this inversion, I think, of the way we need to be thinking and talking about things.
2: What do you think is like a more, I I don't know, maybe, maybe something that's more sympathetic to the individual.
1: The thing that's complicated about the notion of personal responsibility is it's a, it's a bit akin to blame. Right. And in some ways, what I'm kind of looking for here is a third door where we think about things, not so much, at least let's take the blame out of it and just say, people are thinking, feeling beings that are responding to their environments, right? And I think any comprehensive drug addiction treatment is going to have to address what is happening that makes a person feel the need to use that drug to escape whatever it is that they're escaping. In my mind, it is ultimately a far more compassionate way of thinking about things. It's it's more acknowledging of the fact that people feel the need to escape what they're trying to escape for very real and meaningful reasons, you know, that like trauma is real, neglect is real, emotional suffering is real. And, you know, we can look at true blue drug addiction as a slightly more extreme version of something that I think a lot of people are experiencing in more mundane ways all over the place on a daily basis, which is just, you know, In my family, a term for television watching has been called visual vodka, which is a very funny expression, I think, for just like wanting to numb out, right? We as human beings, we numb out in all sorts of ways all the time. We numb out by watching TV. We numb out by having cocktails. We get, you know, like get high in all sorts of ways just to avoid what we're feeling. And it's all part and parcel of a world that doesn't have a great language for letting people feel their feelings and talk about their feelings in ways that are kind of more compassionate and
2: totally. Some of my thinking behind this work is that there's not good ways of expressing like this in in filmmaking either. There's incredible work, but in, in general, it's you get a kind of um, documentary approach, which is like sure. a science-based research interviews, you know what those are, you know, you know how those stories are told. And of course those f- fall flat because what th- it's going to affect the people who are either like addicted to whatever is being talked about it. in the show. They're going to say, yeah, duh, uh, of, of course, or, or that hasn't been my experience, whatever. And then the people who aren't, they're like, oh, that's so educational. And yet th- there will be no like kind of resonance. Right. And then I think that on the other side maybe there's like a glorification in like cinematic experience of of like um like drug use uh yeah. frankly and and I'm not like against like you know being able to express whatever you want Hunter thompson or something like that you can do you know whatever but mm-hmm. it isn't really offering maybe like you're saying like a third door and i think like what i was part of what i was trying to do too is kind of do both or to kind of have a have a third have a third way to talk about this which is like this is my personal experience and it is in some sense like a, a documentation it's it's real in the in that way Th- this is really what he went through and i think that there is like a lot about uh, his experience that is the stuff of documentary but then on the other side too, like to to make it into like a film experience to make it into something that has like a, a sound quality to it that is like immersive and then some of the filming especially in the later ones that have like kind of classic shots like a, a head being shaved or something like that that like represents yeah. something that you can kind of identify with i think that like these i was trying to like find this way into being like hey you can understand this maybe like in this way because i you know i've been trying to sort of under understand him like my whole life uh, i'm still am i talked to him this morning he called me uh weirdly and i don't understand, i don't understand him still but i'm i'm working on it
1: Yeah, and what a gift it is to you and him both to even try, right? Because I feel like that is the third door. And this, you know, the notion of quote unquote personal responsibility is really significant here because it's not, I'm not trying to deny that that part needs to exist in the sense that, you know, things happen to us. We are, I really think, ultimately all on some level. I don't think anyone escapes this. I think it's part of the human condition. Everybody is traumatized in some capacity. We're all victims slash survivors of whatever we experience and we go through, but our healing is our responsibility, right? Like what we do with that trauma is our responsibility. But it's just really interesting. I think something really, really shifts when you take the blame out of it and you approach something with just a lot of compassionate curiosity. Why is a person behaving this way? why does a person feel the need to just depending on the level that we're operating at so just like what you depicted with your father in these films kyler it's like when somebody is abusing drugs that intensely oh my god the intensity of what that person is trying to escape yeah totally holy holy cow you know like if we can just sort of hold that with some grace as opposed to blame it's i just think it's it's a it's a game changer it changes everything
2: also, it's like an extreme behavior and yeah. and it's so common. And there's totally. like very few ex- just totally extreme behaviors that are so common. Like we we're very much addressing those other extreme behaviors like rape, murder, <laughs> whatever. Like there's a bunch of people who have desire that is extraordinary ca- that cannot just continue to be, right?
1: Absolutely. And also... All of this stuff is heavily cultural, which is to say that prescription drug abuse is rampant in yeah. the United States right now. Yeah. And I think we have to wonder why we as a people feel the need to escape our reality so much. I mean, it gets into there are societal and cultural implications to why this extreme behavior is existing you know, in such a rampant fashion. This is similar, actually, when you look at depression and anxiety, because a lot of people think of depression and anxiety as being somehow like endemic to the human condition. But if you look at other cultures, eating disorders, too, there are a lot of things that are really, really rampant in American culture and American society that do not exist at the same rate in other cultures. Hmm. And it's just, it's really interesting to think of these things as being almost like culturally bound syndromes. That we are, you know, the American experiment is an interesting one because there's this, you know, American individualism that really emphasizes a kind of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps mentality and the sort of lack of social safety net and even like relational safety net. Like we are, even before the pandemic, it's amazing how this has made something more extreme. But we are in this country, a society of people that are largely forced to, to live on their own, to raise our children on our own, to like do all of these things in isolation that people in other cultures don't do in as isolated of a fashion as we do. So it's amazing to think, I think we can afford to ask on an individual level, why is somebody engaging in this extreme behavior? And on a broader cultural level, like what is happening in this country that this issue is has reached epidemic proportions, right?
0: To to go back to the the concept of the third door, um, one of the things that I find so interesting about Kyler's practice and where it is right now is that it is so it's it really is different from other practices that are within the can can represented within the canon. So there are a few artists, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, Leslie or not. Nan Golden would be one. She's leading up the pain effort, which is the anti-sackler movement. And this movement has been very successful in getting the Sackler name removed from different cultural institutions. She and I think other representatives of the group have were part of the congressional test uh, testimonies when the Sacklers were, were testifying to Congress. Super interesting. I'm not well informed
1: about what you're talking about, but it's super interesting.
0: I think it's, it it really is interesting, but she is, she has a seminal body of work that came to um, light in the eighties where she was documenting friends and her, essentially her creative family. And she, she's a very, Direct in, in wanting to the public to understand that she was documenting these her life honestly that she was living her life and documenting it with polaroid cameras all different kinds of cameras so there's a huge body of work of hers that exists that allows her all the subconscious of her subconscious and the subconscious really of her you know the individuals around her to come through. And then when it's institutionalized or presented in a museum, then you get the subconscious, like other people's subconscious coming through this work because it's very, very raw. And it, Kyler's, Kyler's is different. And there are younger artists that have really and kind of love for you to talk about the artistic influences. I think it'd be really interesting for both of us. Other younger artists have taken her as a kind of a pivotal figure and an influential figure and have uh, developed similar technical practices that have kind of the same subject matter. They're documenting their, their groups of friends, you know, lots of drugs and sex, etc. And what I think so interesting about the way that that work is, again, is documented but then taken into an institutional context is there is a very basic kind of otherness that happens in the process that again, eliminates this kind of complexity. And I'm going to reference this group I've referenced before, just again, because there's a central figure that Kyler knows very well, the work very well, Dash Snow, who ended up being a very tragic figure. Is he, the work involved a lot of drugs and sex, but also like a lot of experimentation that was really influential at the time um, and continues to be influential And he was part of a group where the drugs were present and the drugs were fun for most of them. Like most of them came through all of this, this period completely unscathed and he did not. And I've always thought to myself, one of the things I find really interesting about this project, Kyler, your project is one, your use of the voicemails is really honest. Like it's very raw material and the stage you were at with the films, like it's really kind of raw documentary material but it's also it's honest in this way that you can't like the other work isn't in an institutional context because you're you're kind of just dulling but it is it's super complicated and as Kyler knows I feel a deep responsibility both to the artists we work with but also to the public to really present work in an honest way to contextualize work in an honest way that it doesn't either glamorize the drug use one way or another, but also doesn't, you know, present a kind of sh- a lens of shaming where you're, you know, you're holding up a figure who uses drugs as someone who's other, because the fact of the matter is we all, as you're saying, like we all deal with the addiction or escape in some way. And I'm going to stop there.
2: I, I totally understand what you're saying. And I think um something for me specifically, both in the way that I guess both at where I was kind of in my life when making the films, it has an effect on it, which is to say, like there was an intentionality when I started with the first film before voicemails and then and then the voicemails film, where I was making films for films. That's how they were going to exist, not in a not in an institution, not not at Lawdale, nothing like that. They were they were in my mind it was going to be, it was going to be viewed that way and and in that way you're right that there is like documentary kind of kind of element to it there's one particular filmmaker who has had the most influence on all of my work for a long time his name is pedro costa he's a portuguese filmmaker and he has spent i mean i think his entire career in this one kind of suburb or like very depressed area outside of, I think it's Lisbon, outside of Lisbon or outside of Porto. I can't remember uh, with like crack and heroin addicts and stuff like this. And he creates these documentaries that are, that are very specific. He goes into one, he goes into one place and he deals with with one person or with a, a very small group of people, sets up a camera, lights it in a certain way and then just spends like maybe a year long on the production, you know, talking to somebody and in kind of one place and, and, let's whatever happens in their life over time kind of play out and he does stay it's staged in some way right and i think this is like a a common and maybe annoying thing for documentary filmmakers like him and 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 others who are who are pretty popular which is like what's what's kind of real and and what's not real but why that is interesting is because you you become a participant in and you become implicated in in your own subject's life and you have to because of that you have to have a kind of empathy both to what you're talking about, but also that human being. And I think that when it comes to some of the other artists that you reference who are like in, in terms of like photographically and technically and like them as kind of characters were very important to me when I was younger and, and like when I was using a lot of drugs, I thought they were very cool. It's a different approach. It's a different approach. And I can't like speak obviously like Dash knows dead, but like Nan Golden is in a different place in her life now. And I wouldn't speak for speak for them but i but I can but I can tell you that like the intentionality of like making a film that had this kind of like ongoing time element to it where I was going to spend four or five years with my dad at different times in different places I couldn't just take a photograph of him and and move on or or a photograph of him and the group of people that he's friends with this is something that had to evolve and really become what it is over time. It wasn't, it wasn't an idea just f- from the start. So for that reason, I think that when you translate that like initial intention, intentionality and put it into a space, like in Lawndale, I think it does. I think it's effective that way because it's taking this kind of, it's taking this like extreme empathy that i had to have and to like congratulate myself a little bit he doesn't deserve the kind of empathy that i that i gave to him or i don't even know what deserve maybe means in that context but i still carry anger and resentment and all these other things about my about my childhood you know about him and but i was patient and loving and i was compassionate like filmmaker and for these years and i think that that comes through or i hope that that comes through in a space like Lawndale. and i know it wouldn't come through in 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 another in another way like we were going to do it in the black box it wouldn't have had the same effect and i think to and i think to give it that where it is like a photo display on a moving photo display kind of all at once that I, that's that's what i think about a response to to what you were saying is that there's clearly. something
1: I want to jump jump in with really quickly, which is just kind of kind of zeroing in on what you were saying about feeling so many things about your father simultaneously, you know, yeah. empathy and anger. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about the human experience is that we do feel so often so many different things simultaneously, right? And that is completely natural, it's completely healthy, it's completely kind of part of being alive. And not only do we not get much education or training in our culture around that we're actually often told that we're really not supposed to be feeling anything at all and kind of going back to this idea of just empathy period I think you can't really feel true empathy without a lot of curiosity and to me that's all over everything that we're talking about right now is how do you how can we maybe make more space even as a culture and create some degree of shared language for the idea that you know People feel lots of feelings. It's part of being alive to feel lots of feelings and even to feel kind of lots of contradictory feelings. You know, you can love a parent and hate them simultaneously. You can feel empathy for someone and rage toward them at the same time. And I think the the more we make room for that, there's just this irony, I think, in the world of mental health, professional psychology, all of this stuff, where there's this irony around the idea that the more room we make for our feelings, the less we need to deny them, suppress them, you know, escape them. So that's what I hear and what you were just saying.
2: Yeah. And I, I mean, I think there is a, there's a time element too. some of the, uh, some of the other films that I've made, I've tried to do, I don't have the same access to people as I have access to him, but, you know, with actors that I've like worked with where characters are based around them, so spend a lot of time with them as a person and be able to develop the right kind of curiosity about the subject. Because I think when you encounter someone for a short period of time, or you see something that is like fantastic and, and interesting and you want to like document it, the, the real problem is that maybe you just don't understand like the questions that, that you really want to mm-hmm. ask yourself. And I, you know, I'm lucky, lucky in some way with him that I do have that kind of access and that kind of time to, yeah, to allow for that kind those kind of like complicated question to try to answer in some way a lot of the complicated questions and conflicting feelings that's
1: so beautiful i think that's a big part of why the finished product is so raw and non-glamorizing and non-otherizing is there's just that authenticity to it of um like really really being in your feelings as they are and being so real and authentic about it thanks
0: within you know i don't know i don't want to call it a trend but let's for the sake of my question, I'm going to call it a trend. The trend towards ascribing addiction to biology. How does one make room for empathy within an argument like that? If it's addiction or mental health, if it's all ascribed, let's say, to genes, and I know it dance on it, how do you create empathy within that? Because it is that human element. I don't know how you connect with something and I should say, I mean, I, I keep referring myself to, to myself as a child of an addict, but I certainly struggled with different addictions over the years, which may or may not be biological because I am predisposed to alcoholism or drug use. And I will just say, and Kyler, if if I had been really a part of this social group, I don't think I'd be alive. I think I would have overdosed in like 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 weeks. But I don't know, you know, I, oftentimes I feel like I struggle with that because of my inherited relationship with my father and his struggles, not because of biology. I don't know.
1: Uh, not because of biology. Yeah. Cause what, I mean, what I was going to say, you know, there can be some both and stuff here going on, right. There can be some genetic predisposition to sort of wanting to, wanting to cope with life in this way. But I think it's really hard to separate, you know, when you have been raised by your biological parent. It's really hard to say what you inherited genetically versus what you witnessed. You know, like this is the coping style that you were taught about growing up. This is, you know, this is, it's so hard to separate that from how we grow up and learn and become adults and develop all of our own stuff. But to answer your question, you know, I don't really know. I think that, I think there certainly can be some empathy in an environment where we view things as being purely biological. I don't know how much of that is actually almost more so like a compassion or a pity than empathy per se. I mean, I'm trying to sort of think about things outside of the world of mental health, even where people can, you know, suffer from genetic disorders. We certainly are capable of, you know, empathizing with somebody who has something like. ALS or, you know, just like any number of things that are really like purely genetic biological conditions. I don't, I don't think these things are mutually exclusive, but I think in the world of human psychology, mental health, that kind of thing. Almost nothing is purely biological. There are some things that are more biologically loaded. Bipolar disorder is actually probably the best example of something that is um, largely biologically driven. It tends to be overdiagnosed, but when you're actually really looking at a true blue case of, of bipolar disorder, that there's a, that's like 80% heritability. Whereas even something like schizophrenia, interestingly enough, is far less heritable. If you look at twin studies, in instances where... One person has schizophrenia and an identical twin that the results of the studies vary, but it's like approximately around 30% of the time that the identical twin also has schizophrenia. So it's, you know, it's kind of interesting to think that environment, trauma, all of those things play into instances, even when something is relatively as extreme as schizophrenia is, is what's occurring. There's a really beautiful TED talk about this. A woman named Eleanor Longden, um, who is English, gave a TED talk about how therapy healed her from schizophrenia. And so much of it had to do with the capacity of the therapist to reach out and enter her world in a truly empathic way. You know, I think to truly empathize, you have to be able to sort of deep dive into the psychology of another person. And to me, that is ultimately more empathic than just saying, well, you know, it is what it is. No one can help it. And the story begins and ends there and then we're done.
2: I don't know, maybe this is jumping to too much of a conclusion, but is there in some way like a child trying to be empathic to their parent by by using the same sort of drugs that 100%.
1: And I I would use actually a slightly different word, which is loyalty. I think there's a lot of loyalty in it, actually, more so than empathy, which is to say that, you know, children really love nothing more, whether we like it or not, than to look to a parent, especially a parent who is, um, when we're dealing with traditional gender constructs, children tend to really want to be like the parent that's of the same gender. There's obviously, this is all really complicated in a non binary world. But in instances where, You know, families exist along gender binaries. There's just children want nothing more than to be like the parent that they identify with in whatever way that they identify with them. And there is, um, there's a definition of loyalty that I have in my universe that's quite a bit more complex than just a slightly, um, the kind of flat definition that we think of when we think of loyalty, the loyalty that a child feels towards a parent, both parents, any parent is phenomenal. And the desire to be of like kind within your family and the desire to be like a parent, um, even to be like loyal to them in their suffering is a profound driving force in what makes us people. I will be with you in your suffering. I will save you from your suffering by being here with you. You know, I will not break this bond by surviving, thriving, being better than, being happy if you're not happy. It's like, crazy factor in human development.
2: Maybe before you started recording, you were talking about this kind of like looking towards uh, these power structures. It feels similar to me and kind of.
1: 100%. It's amazing how true that is. It's like, who is the authority in our lives, right? You know, when we're children, it's our parents. When we're adults, it's our government or whoever we look to as somebody that is gonna, you know, who has the answers.
0: Well, wow, this can be a very powerful and poignant way to wrap up the
2: conversation. If I wish I
1: could just carry you
0: around in my Yeah, house. me too. <laughs> I, I feel the same
1: way. I feel this conversation has been so interesting and so engaging. I could just do this all day long. <laughs> yeah,
2: well, you can. We'll just listen.
1: You've been listening to episode seven of The Nature of Nurture, and I want to thank you for joining me. All of this will be in the show notes, but you can find Kyler at kylerballinger.com. And on Instagram, he's at snake underscore Ballinger. Stephanie is not on social media, but you can find the Lawndale Art Center at lawndaleartcenter.org or on Instagram at Center. If you'd like to get in touch with Stephanie, reach out to me. We'll figure it out. I, as always, can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Leslie Carr, and my website is lesleycar.com. If you found this conversation valuable, please let me know by leaving a review or a rating. It helps immensely to get the word out about the podcast and into the ears of those who may need it most. It'll also help me to understand what you're getting out of our conversations. And you can subscribe, if you haven't already, wherever podcasts are sold. Next up is the very last conversation of the season, an interview with my friend and climate change activist, Heather White. It's never been more urgent. So in April 2021, Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii, which for 50 years has been recording atmospheric carbon dioxide levels, recorded 421 ppm of carbon dioxide, which is a record. Many, many thanks to my producer and sound editor, Amanda Roscoe-Mayo. I could not do this without you. And to Kyler and Stephanie for having this conversation with me. Thank you as well to the Lawndale Art Center for allowing us to repurpose this audio. Thanks to Donio Dulio for the nature of nurture artwork. And thanks as well to Steve Van Dyke, Lee and Tyler Sargent, and Joe Potts for the permission to use their music. The band was called Clown Down.